<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 27. It's titled, What is the Right Price? Before we get into today's episode, I want to welcome those listeners that might be new and let you know that we're 27 episodes in, and, and some people have listened to all 27 in, in or 26 in one weekend or over several weeks. That might not be you, and, and I've done something on the homepage of my website, moneyfortherestofus.net. There you can browse by topic and themes, and you can choose a particular theme, and it'll take you to a page that'll list three or four episodes that cover that theme. It'll also have some articles that also do that. Even if you've listened to all the episodes, this is kind of a way to go back if you want to rehear and, and do it in a thematic approach. So, episode 27, what is the right price? And in today's topic, let me start with a, an experience. I mentioned a few episodes ago, I was in Park City with my family. And there in Park City, there's a bookstore I really like. It's called Dolly's Bookstore. And I like it because the, it's very, very homey feeling. The, the, wood, the floors are hardwood, the shelves are wood, and they're, and they're arranged in sort of nooks. So it feels very, very homey as you sit there and browse. You feel kind of sheltered. Plus, they have this really cool, fluffy cat. And, and so when we go to Park City, we like to go to the bookstore. But it's probably been, I don't remember the last time I actually bought a hardbound book at a bookstore. I usually buy them used online, buy them from Amazon. And, but I, I, I like Dolly's Bookstore, and I wanted to support their business. So I decided I'm going to buy a book. And I'd recently read a, the Kindle sample of Stephen Pinker's book, it's a book on writing called A Sense of Style. And I thought, well, that, that'd be a good book to buy. And I found it on the shelf. It was $27.95. And it was not, not a very thick book. I had my phone and looked it up. Well, what, what does it cost on Amazon? $16.77 for the same hard book on Amazon. So at an $11 premium. And the ebook was about $12. 99, which is it's pricey for an ebook, but also 45% less than the hardbound book. And, and I looked at the book, I held it in my hand. I thought, this, this Pinker's nice book, but not very thick. Doesn't I feel like if I paid $27.95, I might be overpaying. And, and I'd have a lot more at risk. What if I didn't like the book? And then I, I paid that much. So I put it back on the shelf. And, 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 and hemmed and hawed and thought about it. And I realized, well, one way I thought about it is, well, yeah, the, maybe look at it like I'm paying $17 for the book and $10.95 for the entertainment at shopping at 
dollies. And I, that, that would be one way to look at it, sort of break it down into the entertainment component of shopping because Amazon online shopping isn't terribly entertaining, but in a bookstore with a fluffy cat, that could be entertaining. But I still felt like I was overpaying. Yet later that night, my daughter and I would go eat at a Vietnamese restaurant, pay more than $27.95 to eat there, and it didn't feel like I was overpaying. Here's what I was suffering from, and it's something we all suffer from. It's called anchoring and, and mental accounting. Anchoring is a concept in behavioral finance where we have what's called a reference price, something that that sort of anchors our view of what things should cost. In my case, 10 years ago, paying $20, $25 for a hardbound book seemed okay because that's what books cost. Now with ebooks, which I tend to prefer ebooks because I, I can highlight passages without feeling like I'm defacing the page. I can store hundreds of books on my Kindle or my iPad, and I can carry them with me. I can do keyword searches, so I find them much more convenient. But sometimes it's just, it feels like you want to hold a real book and turn real pages. But my anchor price for book is $10. So now when I pay more than that, it seems like I'm overpaying. And that's what's called anchoring. The other concept in behavioral economics is called mental accounting. And we, we do this all the time. We have certain categories where we might have certain anchor prices, but that's one mental account. For example, eating out at a restaurant, in my mind, $27.95 at a sit-down restaurant where you're paying for the service, you're paying for the atmosphere, you're paying to eat off of uh, glass china plates, silverware, that seems like a reasonable price. Yeah, it's more than paying what you would pay if you did carry out, but it was less. Well, it was it was more than that, but but my mental count, $30 for a sit-down dinner at a decent restaurant is a reasonable price to pay. Yet, as I go to Molly's and and think about paying this $27.95 Different mental count, different price, my anchor price for books. The problem was solved by my daughter, though. She found a book that she wanted. It was called 21st Century Herbs. It was a modern encyclopedia uh, of herbs, or as she called it, herbs. And it pointed out to me that you can't actually say herbs for herbs in, I don't know if they say that in the UK, but the dictionary at least said that was an appropriate pronunciation. So she she just likes to call me by saying herbs. So she found a herb book, $35. It was hardback, but it was thick and heavy and 500 pages with glossy photos. And it was presented really, really nice on the page. You you open it up and, and kind of on two page, it would feature one one herb or herb and 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 how it can use. And it was it was a cool book. And I looked at I looked up the price on Amazon, twenty six dollars and three cents. So there was still a premium to pay for the book at Dolly's. You would I didn't it was superior to the ebook. And and at the end we we bought the book, and we felt good about it. Now, 
that entertainment premium was also there. There was a, a $9 entertainment premium for that, that, that supported Dolly's. And I understand why Dolly's charges $27.95 for a book or $35 rent in Park City is expensive on Main Street. And particularly, this is a great location because it's right behind a chocolate store. Chocolate and books, what a great combination. And they have workers to pay. These, this is not a, a big store. It's a small store. And so there's workers that curate this collection of books because it has classics. It has new releases, hardback and paperback books. And it, it's a great bookstore because... I like to go to physical bookstores because it just gives – I run into books I hadn't thought of or I hadn't seen before and just the juxtapositions of, of different types of books. There's a cat to feed at the store. The fluffy cat needs cat food. There's power bills to pay. There's a premium to physical bookstore. And so I should be comfortable paying an entertainment premium for, for being there. I felt better doing it with a $35 book because – it was a $9 entertainment premium, pretty close to $11 for the $27.95 book, but it was only 25% of the herb book, and that entertainment premium was, was close to 40% for the, the writing book. And, and so that's another an example of, of mental accounting where the premium paid was a smaller percentage, so it felt like... I was paying less. Behavioral economics is, and I referred to it last week in a book by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. And Richard Thaler was another researcher in behavioral economics. And they researched sort of these mental games that we pay, play with, with pricing decisions in our financial life. Anchoring is an example of that. Mental accounting is another example of that. Another, another aspect of mental accounting is a number of years ago, my son and I went to New York. And I used to go to New York a couple times a year, but I, I brought him with me and he wanted to go see a Broadway show. We were going to go see Spamalot. Great show. I pre-ordered the tickets. They were probably $100 a piece, which, which is a lot. And they had him sent to me. We we showed up in New York. We were there a couple of days and decided, well, it's it's our day. It's Friday. We need to go to the show. I pull out the ticket, and the date was for the day before Thursday. We missed it. Now what do you do? Well, I we went down to the theater and <laughs> I showed him my ticket that expired, and just there was that very very small hope that maybe. They would let us in. No, the the gentleman says, you're going to have to buy another ticket. Well, how much are those? $150 a piece. And what do you do? I I bought the ticket. So now we have $250 per ticket to go see Spamalot because I had to buy, buy them twice. That felt like I was overpaying. Yet, here's something interesting with behavioral economics. If I had actually lost $100 or $200, and as opposed to having missed the ticket, it wouldn't have felt so bad. In other words, it's another example of mental counting. Losing money is one thing. 
So I've gone to the movie theater and bought and wanted to to buy a ticket to go to the movie theater, but I lost my my ten dollars that I was going to use to pay and had to use another ten dollars to buy a movie ticket. It wouldn't have felt so bad because it was still only ten dollars associated with the movie ticket. In the case of Spamalot, I now had two hundred fifty dollars riding on this one Broadway show, and it dang well better be good because it I got so much vested in it. Monetarily, it's the same thing. It's still $250, but now it's tied to the mental account of entertainment. And this episode, and it was a good show. I'm not sure it was worth $250 per ticket, but my son enjoyed it, and and it was a good experience. Here's a question for you. Is it better to pay $500 for a weekend in New York City? Or is it better to take that $500 and buy a new iPhone 6? Now, better in terms of which will make you happier. There's a recent study that James Hamlin pointed out in Atlantic Magazine, and it was a study by Tom Miskilovich, Matthew Killingsworth, and Amit Kumar, their behavioral finance. They studied the brain, and it was an article in what was James Hamlin was writing about it, but it was in the journal Psychological Science. And they asked this question, what's better to, to what will make you happier, buying a thing or buying an experience? It turns out that the experience makes us happy. And here's a quote by James Hamlin. Quote, essentially, when you can't live in the moment, they say, it's best to live in anticipation of an experience. Experiential purchases like trips, Concerts, movies, etc., tend to trump material purchase because the utility of buying anything really starts accruing before you buy it. The this for my son going to spam a lot, he would have he was very very happy because because you could look forward to it. This looking forward we, we to experiences actually brings us pleasure. Looking forward, I ordered an iPhone six. It's not going to be here for thirty days. That, that delay in waiting for an iPhone, because I've already touched that, I know exactly what it's like, doesn't really make me happy. As opposed to a trip that we're taking in, in January to, to Phoenix, where it'll be nice and sunny, as opposed to cold and snowy in Idaho, that I'm willing to wait for, and it makes me happy. And so always better to, to buy experiences than to, to purchase things. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Let's revisit this concept of anchor prices. One way to avoid overpaying for something is not have a reference point in mind in terms of what it should cost. Here's an example. I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. And when I, in my early 40s, I decided I want to get an executive physical because I'm kind of getting middle age. I want to make sure that there's nothing lurking that I'm not not aware of. So I went to, we went down to Phoenix to the Mayo Clinic and they spent an entire day doing diagnostics. And and we had kind of our, the one doctor that was kind of quarterback. And, and, we, and at the end of the day, we met with him and he pointed out, and, and I'll say he pointed out with a, a great sense of glee <laughs> and that I had a very rare heart condition that would potentially need surgery at some point. And when I say Glee, you remind me of the character House on the TV show where he literally said, I would never have thought that was wrong with you. And I'm sitting there, what, 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 what? I've never heard of this disease. What, what is this? And he explained it to me, but it was, but as a result, I have a heart condition and, and potentially, and it's a, it would be a risky surgery if I needed it. And so, Every two years, I go to the Cleveland Clinic to have them check out my heart. And, and it, there's no symptoms at all. So, I mean, I'm perfectly fine. So, don't, not that you're worried about it. So, I, I'm fine, except potentially I'll need a surgery. And so, I go, and I just did this a few weeks ago. I went to Cleveland Clinic, and, and I chose Cleveland Clinic because this is such, here's my philosophy on medical care. If, if 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 possible, if you have some risky surgery that not many people have done, go to the place where they've done the most of them because they're the ones that are learning the most. And 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 not every, I recognize not everybody can do that, but in this case, I am willing to go to the Cleveland Clinic and have them check out my heart. And and so you go through the diagnostics, and then I'm I'm there in the waiting room or actually in the examining room, waiting for the doctor and the fellow to come in and tell me what the status is. And, and if you've been there, it's a little nerve-wracking because you don't, I mean, things could have turned for the worst. They came in, they told me I was fine, and, and now I'm back home in Idaho waiting for the bill. I can tell you, it doesn't matter what the bill's going to be because now I have the peace of mind that, that I'm okay. Cleveland Clinic 
could could charge as much as they want. Now I, I have I have a high deductible insurance plan, so I mean I'm paying out of pocket for whatever it is. But there isn't a reference point because it's a unique experience. For completely unique experiences, in this case, not necessarily a good unique experience, but one that I'm willing to pay for for my health, there is no anchor price, a reference point. Think about going to, I used to work with colleges and I would invest money for colleges, a lot of liberal arts, private schools that charge forty, fifty thousand $50,000 per year. Think about the price of Harvard or Yale or some of these other schools. In their case, it is a unique experience. We talk about how tuition rates have gone up significantly, but one, one little secret for, for colleges, particularly private schools, is the tuition is just, that's just the sticker price. It's a list price. They, they're heavily discounting off that depending on the students. So everybody sort of pays a different price, but because it's a unique experience, we're willing to pay more. And if you get a discount because you get a scholarship and, and most people get some type of financial aid, it lowers the price. So then it doesn't, it doesn't feel so bad. Another example is I recently got my bill from my accountant. I don't have an anchor price for what my accountant should charge me. I know if I, did, I could pay $50 for a software program to do it, but my taxes are so t- complicated, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work for me anymore. And, and so I go to an accountant, and we don't even talk about what the bill's going to be. He just sends me a bill a- after he does his accounting. In this case, it was a, it was a, I think it was a $1,600 bill. I got a $100 discount because I did refer a client to him this year. $1,600. I have no idea what uh, – I mean, he did my taxes – I got a refund, which was a surprise because I, I, I pay all estimated taxes, so I, I pay too much in estimated taxes. So that, that lessened the blow. But for things where there, is, there isn't really a reference price, particularly for information content, he's providing a service. I don't usually, you don't usually price shop for accounting services. You go because of their, their experience. And, and because I go to him because he's a friend and he could pretty much charge what he wanted and I probably would pay it because I don't really have a reference price. Now, I did in this case, I went back to a friend back in Ohio and asked, well, what do you pay for your accountant? $600. Well, I don't know how good his accountant is. So it makes it very, very challenging. That's one of the issues with, with financial advice where or an intangible. Why? Why pay 1% for somebody to manage your money? Is that a good price? I used to, ma- I used to manage money. And, and I can tell you, when I first started back in 95, I had clients that we were paying that paid us $8,000. I'd say it was like a $30 million college foundation, $8,000. And I, at one point, I tripled the fee to 24000 And how could I justify that? Well, because it wasn't a reference price, and I was getting paid based on what my percent of the revenue. And so I, I felt like I deserved a raise. And they were paying managers 1%, and, and I was making sort of we – were, we were 
probably making 0.006 or 0.8%. So very, very small. And so that was kind of a reference. It was a reference to me. They're making the managers that are picking stocks are making a lot more money than me that's working with the committee doing the asset allocation, the policy. And at the end of the day, here's the thing about investing. It's the asset allocation over the long term that drives performance, not whether some stock manager is holding IBM or Apple. It has a small impact, but not as much impact as how much we have in stocks, how much in bonds, how much in alternative investments such as private capital, et cetera. So I, I could justify tripling the fee. And when we get a new client, it would be twice as much as that, not 24000 Then it, we raised our fees to 50000 then 100000 And that's why you need to be careful with, with financial advice because there isn't really any reference point because it's, it's an information product. You're, you're providing a, in some ways, what investment advisors provide is, is hope to some extent, but also just that peace of mind and that confidence. What price do you put on that? Now, there's one more aspect of price that, and what is the right price, that economists are really, really worried about right now, and that's deflation. Follow, fall, falling prices is what de- deflation is. And, and there's even mental sort of gymnastics that we do regarding falling prices. We're looking to take a trip next year back to, to overseas. I haven't bought the tickets yet because I know the price of oil has fallen and I've seen it fall 20%, yet it's not reflected in ticket prices. The, I expect airline ticket prices to fall. The concern regarding deflation that worries economists is if we get and consumers get in the habit of waiting for prices to fall before we buy – and that's where you can get into a, a very much a deflationary spiral because deflation tends to occur during period where there's excess capacity, where there's high unemployment. And so people are unwilling to spend. And so businesses start to lower prices in order to spur demand. But if consumers start to wait for prices to fall, then they're less likely to buy. And we get, let's get back to these these reference prices. Think about computers and electronics. We're sort of used to the prices not going up. This year's iPhone is should be priced very close to the one two years ago, yet it's so much better. And so on a, a quality-adjusted basis, it's actually dropped in price. Now, if, if baskets of good are falling in price, not because they're getting better, but because Businesses are lowering prices in order to spur demand, and we get into the habit of waiting for it. We don't want to buy now because it could be cheaper in tomorrow or next week. That is what concerns economists and government officials and central banks about deflation. So there is a behavioral aspect to inflation and deflation where, again, we have reference points and anchor prices. If we think prices are going to go up, we act one way. If we think they're going to go down, we act another way. One other aspect of these mental games we play with pricing is something Richard 
Thaler has done research on called the endowment effect. Laprille and I have been wanting to buy an old Airstream trailer or some one of these cool trailers from the 50s or 60s. And as you drive, drive all around Idaho, everyone seems to go out in the country and there are trailers in people's yards that haven't moved in years. And invariably, when you go and ask them, is the trailer for sale? They'll, they'll say no. And if you try to get them to name a price, it'll be very, very high. There is an aspect called the endowment effect. When we own something, the value of that tends to be much greater than it would be if we didn't own it. And because we, we use it, we, we have some emotional attachment to it. And so often it's hard to, to part with it. And so it, we value it more. There's an endowment effect. Traders, though, it's a trader in campers don't have that because in their case, the, the trailer is to be traded. It's in a different mental account. It's not something to be used. The endowment effect affects things that we use. And so we're, we are unwilling to depart with them, and whereas somebody trying to buy it wants to pay a lot less, they want to pay a fair price, but oftentimes that endowment effect means the price that we want is much higher than really what it ought to be. So these are all examples of the behavioral aspects to pricing. What is the right price? The right price depends. It depends on our reference point. It depends on our mental account. It depends on the endowment effect. It depends on where we think prices are going to be, whether they're rising or falling. These are all aspects. There's ne- it depends on how unique the experience is and whether we're willing to pay for it. All these impact the, the price. And there isn't ever a right price. It always, always depends. Now, what we can do to, to help us is to recognize it. Recognize when we have mental accounts and how it really doesn't really make sense. We, if we can step back and and try to be a little more logical in terms of why we feel like we do about prices, sometimes we can make it through. It's just as I did at the bookstore. I knew why I felt like I was overpaying. I knew I could talk about the entertainment premium but at the end of the day, I found a way to support the bookstore by actually paying more than I would have if I'd bought the cheaper book, but I felt better about it. That's episode 27, What is the Right Price? You can get show notes for this episode, including links to a number of the articles that I referenced at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide where I will email you those show notes each week. Also in the email, I share things that didn't make it into the show. I answer listeners' questions, and it's sort of a forum, ongoing kind of dialogue. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. You can email me with questions or suggestions for show topics at jd at jdavidstein.com. Everything I've shared with you on this episode is for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I have not provided investment advice, simply education on money, investing, economy, next week, episode 28.